Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 today. Matthew chapter 6, this is part 2 of our Money Matters messages as we look at the new year and begin to plan for what God might have in store for us to be prepared for what his plans are. Last week we looked at some significant truths that the the most important thing for both of these sermons is you, you get that one point that God owns everything and if God owns everything we said last week that my life belongs to God that's what we've been singing about all morning and if God owns everything and my life belongs to God I need to understand that therefore God has made me a manager or a steward of everything in my life. All my resources, all my money, all my things that I think are mine really aren't mine, my relationships, God has made me a steward of all those things. And so today we're gonna talk about, once we've settled the issue of ownership, we're gonna talk about the matter of priorities today. So let's look at Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew chapter six. And you follow as I read. By the way, since he told us that we can't serve both God and money, he says this, This is why I tell you, verse 25, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they? Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and to be thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? You have little faith. So, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? What will we eat or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Verse 33, but seek first his kingdom, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, Don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We could probably park on any number of those verses in that passage of Scripture and talk for a long time, but I want to take this passage as a whole, talk about the issue of priorities, because I think that's what Jesus was trying to drive home to his disciples. He looks at a contrast in this passage, a a contrast between those that don't know God and where their trust is and what they see is important. And then he looks at contrasting that with those people who do know God and what they value and what they see is important. So let's, let's look at those two today, all right? First of all, number one, those who don't know God, what are they like? Those who don't know God seek after material things. Those who don't know God seek after material things. 
He says in verse 32, for the idolaters or the, the pagans, those who don't know God, those who are outside of the faith, those who are unbelievers, eagerly seek all these things. So here's the picture of a person that doesn't know God. What do they seek? What do they long for? They're worried about clothing. They're worried about what they're going to eat. They're worried about all those things. He says that's a characteristic of an unbeliever. So basically, Jesus is saying, don't do like they do. Don't do like the rest of the world does. You need to be different. By the way, the Sermon on the Mount was all about that, all about us being different than the world. So let's look at the two characteristics of a person who doesn't know God that Jesus shows us here. First of all, the characteristic of worry. This person worries. What does worry do? Have a note there. It steals the joy from today. He says it repeatedly in this passage. Don't worry. Therefore, don't worry. And he gives those examples of clothing and and food. Don't worry about those things. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry. Because worry steals the joy from today. He wraps up the passage in verse 34 when he says, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I think that's just Jesus saying, live right now. Live in the present. Don't worry about all that, whether it's the tomorrow or what the, where the next thing is going to come from to satisfy your need. A Harvard psychologist, Daniel Gilbert, wrote a book called Stumbled on Happiness. And he, he opens the book with this statement. The human is the only animal that. Now you can tell he's a secular psychologist because he's calling human an animal. That gives you a clue where he's coming from. But he says that it should be the role of every professor of psychology and sociology to be able to fill in that blank. The human is the only animal that. How would you fill in the blank? Here's what he says, and he goes to present this thesis. The human is the only animal that thinks about the future. Pretty insightful, isn't it? Can I paraphrase that and line up with what Jesus says? The human is the only animal that worries about the future. Gilbert says that we spend 12% of every day thinking about the future. One, about one hour in eight thinking about the future. Jesus says that's a characteristic. If you're thinking about the future with anxiety, that's a characteristic of an unbeliever. Because what happens is you worry so much about what's going to happen tomorrow that you miss what God wants to do right now, right here. Right now. It's the equivalent of being in your living room with your family and you have them with you, but you're busy thinking about what you're going to do with your family tomorrow and you're on your computer. Ouch. Or you're in your, you're looking through your journal, or whatever, you're, you're looking at the future. What can I do with my family tomorrow? And they're sitting right there in the living room with you today. And they're saying, hey, right now, you've got me right now. That's the equivalent of saying, I'm going to, I'm planning something big for y'all. It's going to be good. Dad, we need you right now. It'll be good. I'm working on that. And they, all they would say is, put that stuff away. We want you right now. Worry steals the joy from today. And here's what the, the characteristic of the godless, the, the idolaters, the pagans, they worried about material things. They depended on themselves and stuff for their happiness. Basically, they were selfish. And what does Jesus call us to be? Selfless. 
Worry steals the joy. The second characteristic of a person who doesn't know God is wasted energy. Wasted energy. Look at verse 27, this great picture. Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? Can anyone add a single cubit to his height by worrying? You know what the answer is, don't you? No. When I was a kid, I was, I was little. I was one of the smallest kids in my class until I got in junior high school, and I always wanted to be taller. I just wanted to be taller. I just thought if I could just be taller, I could be a great basketball player or something. I could not have to look up to everybody. I just wanted to be taller. I remember I was maybe Leave It to Beaver, one of the, the kids in that show would, was hanging all day long or trying to hang all day long on this bar and they said what are you doing he said well I, I want to be taller and if, if I do this I'll stretch myself and maybe I'll grow a little faster pretty futile isn't it to think that by doing something like that I'm going to make myself taller that, that's what Jesus says do you think by, by doing anything of this, this looking at the future and worrying about it you're going to make any difference in your life it's just wasted energy totally wasted energy um, have you ever watched a, tall, a toddler throw a temper tantrum? You know what they do? I've watched adults do this too, but uh. <laughs> what a toddler does is when they don't get their way, they, they scream and stomp their feet, and if that doesn't work, then they might lay down on the ground, and they might flap their arms around, and they might kick and scream and get the tears going and make you feel really sorry for them. And you just want to say, that's wasted energy. Well, don't you wish you could bottle that? By the way, little parenting tip here. I believe that 90% of parenting issues could be settled with this one thing. Don't ever give a toddler what they throw a fit for. We told our kids when they were very little and they could understand, if you throw a fit, you don't get it, period. See, because what we teach our kids is, we, we actually teach them this in our society, if you throw a big enough fit and get my attention, I'll finally give in, right? I might count to five or 10, but eventually I'm gonna be, fit, I'm gonna be fed up and I'm gonna give you whatever you want. So kids control us. That's just a little side there, okay? Parenting tip. Don't give them what they throw a fit for. And I would tell my kids sometime, you know what? I was gonna let you have that if you hadn't thrown that temper tantrum. But since you did, I cannot give that to you because that's our rule. Wasted energy. And I want to say to him, you can, you can scream and rant and rave all you want. You're not getting that. That ice cream's staying in the freezer. That's wasted energy. God, God would say to us, go ahead and fret. It's wasted energy. It's useless. By the way, God's in control anyway. And you're not going to bend him or move him or manipulate him by worrying Don't be like those who don't know God, who worry, who waste energy on stuff like that. That ought to be settled, right? The issue of ownership. God owns it all, and he's going to take care of us. Let's look at the other side of this now. Let's look at the believer, the follower of Christ, those who know God. Number two, those who know God seek after his kingdom and his righteousness. Look at verse 33 with me. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There it is right there. I want to explain what those two 
words mean? What do we mean when we say, when God says his kingdom? And what does it mean when we say his righteousness? I think it's in your outline there. His kingdom is this. It can be defined as the rule and the reign of God in people's lives. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And, and there is an ultimate fulfillment of that, that yes, we want the Lord Jesus to come back and to usher in the end of the age and to set up his earthly millennial kingdom here or where he does rule and reign in the world. And we do ultimately want his kingdom to come where we're with him in, in heaven for eternity. Yes, we, we do want that. But there's an essential part of the kingdom that I believe Jesus was really emphasizing here, and it's the rule and the reign of God in people's lives. When we say, God, I want your kingdom to come, that means we want him to be on the throne of the hearts of people. We want the king to take up residence in us, to be enthroned. We talk at Christmas about uh, peace on earth, and we think that Jesus came to give peace on earth to end all war. Well, ultimately, that will happen. But the first element of peace on earth is peace in hearts where Christ rules and reigns and he's the authority and he's the, the referee, as Paul says, in our hearts. His kingdom is Christ enthroned. Two things about that kingdom. First of all, we will have different values. So the first thing, values. Those are the things, if I am a Christ follower and I'm gonna be characterized by a life of trust and obedience, I will value the things that God values. Question, do we value the things that God values? What's important to us? Is this building important to us? We spent a lot of time and energy in prayer. People gave sacrificially so that we could be in this building debt-free. A lot of time in prayer and giving went into purchasing the property next door and and re redoing this land back here for parking, all of those things, yeah, they, that we believe those are essential into reaching people, but those aren't the important things. Because in the midst of all of that, you know what we talked about? We talked about the things God values, trust, obedience, faithfulness, growing in relationship with him. We talked more about that than we did any building for those seven years as we came to this place, as we came to this, to be in this facility. It's all about that relationship with him, that's what God values. Not just the brick and mortar, but the people that, that we're to reach, the empty seats that should be filled with people who he loves and cares for, the people who haven't come to be a part of this fellowship yet. I like one church, it had a sign on there, a visitor's parking, it said, instead of visitor's parking, it said future member. Future member parking. I think that might scare some people off and they wouldn't park there. But I like the thought, don't you? That says, we're, we're waiting for you. We're here for you. When anybody says, I, I like our church to be this size. By the way, if, if I was to say what I like, I, I liked us even smaller for me because it was easier. <laughs> but when we say, I like our church this size, I want to say, well, what if we had had that attitude before you were added to this church? Just think about that for a minute. I don't know how many folks are here that were here when I came. There might, be, there might be five of us that were here in 1994. Maybe five still around. What if those five had said, we like it just the way it is? You'd be left out. What does God value? He doesn't value us saying it's us for no more. He values the fact that we're to be open and, and reaching others. 
Who's the next one? Who's the next one? They taught us in, in Amway. That was a neat time in my life when we were involved in that. Had a lot of training and teaching. And, and they, they taught us to say next. Whenever you presented the business plan to someone and they said, no, thank you, you just said, okay, next. And what they taught us is there's always somebody out there waiting to hear this plan. And I, I thought that was a good thing. We, we can apply that here. When someone walks the aisle in this church and receives Christ as Savior, or, or someone like this morning in the early service, uh, a young lady came and, and made her uh, commitment to be a member of this church. We say, praise God for that. Next. See, who's the next one? We don't even know who they are. You might be sitting in here. That's what God values. He values a church that will say, it is not about us. It's about those we have yet to reach. I hope we keep that as one of our important values. Another thing God values is the heart. See, Jesus said it. Man looks on the, on the outward appearance. Boy, when, in the Old Testament, when they were selecting the king, that's what God told them when they wanted Saul. And, and God said, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. You go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and you find Jesus saying, well, there is a thing called murder, but when you are angry with someone in your heart, you're guilty. There is a thing called adultery, but when you lust after someone, you're guilty. Jesus wasn't so concerned about magnifying the external uh, part of it. He was concerned with the heart. That's what he tells his disciples here. It says something about our heart when I act like a a person who's worried, I'm acting like an unbeliever. It says my heart, there's a lack of trust and obedience there. That's what God values. Next thing, what about vision? The things that God wants to accomplish. See, not only does God value those people who have yet to be reached, but his vision is that we reach them. I, I know this by experience, and you could probably say by experience too, even though you may not like it, but if you leave a group of God's people alone and don't challenge them constantly to reach out beyond themselves, they will just become a holy huddle. It doesn't matter if it's a grace group or a connection class or a church or denomination. If you focus only on us and there isn't somebody constantly reminding you that it's about others, we just become more inward focused. God has a vision that goes beyond us. But by his grace, he's allowed us to be a part of that vision. Isn't that exciting? God, God has told us that he wants to reach our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And he says, you know what, Coastal Oaks? I'm gonna let you be a part of that. Because I firmly believe if we don't wanna be a part of it, God will do it anyway. He'll use somebody else. I, I like David's prayer in, um, when he was dedicating the temple in First or Second Samuel. Remember, we talked about this in Gibeon where David said, God, who am I and who are your people that we should have the privilege of bringing you this gift for the temple? I, I like that prayer for us. Who am I and who are we that we should have the privilege of sharing Christ with people and seeing them come into the faith and seeing the discipled? What a privilege that is. God values those things. God's vision is to reach those people. By the way, I think Coastal Oaks has learned this to a great degree, and we have more to learn, but we've learned to give to vision and not just need. I know that if we stand up and say there's a need, we have a, a family who is in need, this church responds. In the middle of our journey when we were raising money to build this building, 
there was a fire in one of our church family's homes and they lost their business and this church stopped our offering emphasis for the building and we, we gave for that family. This, this church responds to needs. If it's a mission need or a benevolence need or whatever, we do that. But I, something else this church does, this church has learned to give to vision. We give to, what's the vision? It's the calling God has for the ministries of this church. I don't have to stand up here and explain to you where every dime is going that you give. You give because you know that God's called this church to reach people, and you're going to be a part of that. I thank God that we met budget last year and that our, our finance committee and personnel team has, has planned for us to even move beyond that this year. It's exciting. Those are the things that God has a vision for, reaching more. That's his kingdom, his vision, his values. Now, what about his righteousness? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I've defined righteousness in your outline there. It is a righteous life that is in full submission to Jesus Christ. His righteousness is not only for the the Lord to be enthroned where his values and his vision are mine, but his righteousness is my righteousness. I'm totally, completely submitted to him. A couple of things about that. First of all, that means I'm going to be yielded to God. Yielded to God. You know what a yield sign means? It means you yield the right of way to that other lane of traffic. Doesn't matter what you think. If there's a yield sign, it means they have the right of way. God, God says in my life as a follower of Christ, there's a giant yield sign in my life. It says, Kevin, I have to yield to the Lord here. He always has the right of way. Think about that one. Well, God, I've got my plan. I've got my purpose. I've got my desires. I've got my agenda. God says it doesn't matter. You yield to me. I love what William Booth wrote. He prayed this prayer. He was the founder of the Salvation Army. Talk about a man with vision. He he wrote a, a prayer that he prayed every day, and it's lengthy, but the very end of that prayer, I love what he said. At the end of his prayer, he prayed this daily, God help me, enable me to cultivate a spirit of self-denial and yield myself a prisoner of love to the redeemer of the world. Well, that, that's a good prayer. God, help me to cultivate an attitude of self-denial, a spirit of self-denial, and to yield myself as a prisoner of love to the God of the world. Can you pray that prayer? Tell what, it might transform some of our lives if you prayed that every prayer. God, today, cultivate in me a spirit of self-denial and lead me to yield myself as, as your prisoner, a prisoner of love. By the way, you know what that means? Willingly. The Old Testament, when a slave was released, they had the opportunity to come back to that master and be labeled as a volunteer slave. They put an all and mark their ear, and that marked that person as a, a person who'd been given their freedom but chose to stay under that master because that master was kind and loving and compassionate. That's what we are. We are volunteer slaves. And when William Booth prayed, God, teach me, cultivate in me a spirit of, of yieldedness and a, and a spirit of a, a prisoner of love, that's what he's saying. God, I willingly give my life to you on a daily basis. That's what it means to be yielded to God. What's on your agenda for 2013? What's your plan? I'm all about planning. I'm all about strategy. But ultimately, what I want to know is what God wants. That's where you start. God, what are you going to be up to this year? How can I join you in what you're doing? I want to be yielded to that. Tell you what, every place in my life where I have said, I think God's leading me this way, 
but I'm not sure that I'm ready. I think I'll go this way. Every time I've done that, it's been a mess. Every time. Every time. And every time I've been on my plan and purpose and I've seen God's yield sign and I've stopped and I've waited on him, every time it's been, it's been for the better. May not have been for the better at the moment as far as I could see it. You know how that goes? But God blessed, yield to him. And then I think this comes full circle with this last point. At least for me it does. There is to be a yearning, a yearning to know God on a deeper level. A yearning to know him on a deeper level. Look at, look at verse 33 with me again. He says in the previous verses, this is the way the world lives, but, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's a yearning. He says, instead of worrying about what you're gonna wear, Instead of worrying about what you're going to eat, instead of worrying about where your next paycheck's going to come from, instead of worrying about how you're going to pay for the car repairs, instead of worrying how you're going to pay for those medical bills, seek first me, he says. Yearn. Do you, do you have a desire for a deeper level, deeper level of intimacy with God? I don't know how long you've known Christ. For me, it's been most of my adult life, almost all of my adult life, and I have barely scratched the surface of that intimacy level that I want to be with the Lord. I, I want to yearn for that. I want to long for that. Are you yearning for that? Tell you what, if you think you've arrived and you're mature, think again. If you think you've, you've gotten to that level where you have all the Bible knowledge you need, and all the spiritual depth and maturity you need, think again. The heroes of the faith, you go all the way back to the New Testament and bring it all the way up to current day today. Guys like Bill Bright, Campus Crusade for Christ. That was Bill Bright's, right? Campus Crusade, somebody help me. That's your blank. Yeah, Campus Crusade. Bill Bright, when, when he came into those last years of his life, even, even when he was dying, there was a yearning, a longing to know the Lord. He was in the hospital one time with this terminal illness and they finally got to communicate with him and they said, Bill said, what do you want? And he said, I just want to go home. And so they started making plans for him to die and, and they knew he was ready to be with the Lord and finally he got to it. He said, no, I want to go home. <laughs> I'm not ready yet to go to heaven. I want to go home. <laughs> but in those days after he went home, when they thought he was going to die, he wrote and he shared and he prayed and he, and you could feel the passion of his heart that all he wanted was a deeper, more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to hang out with people like that. I want that yearning, that longing. When I was a kid, my parents dropped us off at the Guadalupe Mountain National Park. I don't know why they dropped us off there, but they did. I, I don't know how old I was, but we decided three of us were going to go backpacking. And my parents dropped us off 100 miles or so away from home and said, we'll be back to get you in three or four days. That's unheard of today, but that's what we did. That was before cell phones, but we had our maps, our topographical map, and we knew where we were going. We'd been there before, so they dropped us off, and we went up there and, and uh, got up in the mountains, had a great time. 
uh, backpacking and enjoying the beauty, seeing El Capitan, Guadalupe Peak, all that stuff. And, and as we're getting ready to come back down out of the mountain, my friends decided to try a different route down out of the mountain. Now, that's a dumb idea. We're up there, we're, we're kids, we're by ourselves, and let's go blaze a new trail. Well, they said, look, there's trails down here. Let's take this switchback trail. So I learned later as I got down the trail that those were trails of deer and stuff like that, goats. They weren't made for people. And we got to the end of the trail, and we were in this steep canyon, and we got scared. I was scared already, but when I could see fear in the eye of my buddies, I knew we were in trouble. And we made some very dangerous attempts to get out of those mountains by ourselves, it was in the summertime, and it was hot, and it was dry, and of course, we didn't plan on spending a whole afternoon getting out of the mountains, so our canteens were empty, and there was no water, and we got thirsty, and all I could think about the whole way, well, two things. Number one, I'm going to die, because <laughs> we're doing some scary things on these cliffs. We left stuff behind. It was scary, but the second thing I thought of the whole time was, I will never again turn down a drink of water. All I could think about was all the times when somebody said, would you like a drink of water? I said, no, thank you. I said, I will never turn down a drink of water again. I was so thirsty. I've never been so thirsty in all my life, ever. I thought if I can just get off this mountain alive, I'm going straight to the water fountain. And we about drained the ranger station water fountain, I think. That, that's, the, that's the longing that Jesus talks about here like a stupid kid in the Guadalupe Mountains who can't wait to get to the water fountain. That's us. Will you long for him with me this year? Will you thirst for him? That's what he wants. See, it's a matter of priorities. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It's interesting, he says, then all this other stuff will be provided for you. Let's pray together.